Welcome to this episode of the Security Clearance Careers Podcast, ClearCast, your source for security clearance, intelligence community, espionage, national security, and defense contracting updates in our exclusive interviews with intelligence community and government leaders. Hello and welcome and happy Halloween, everyone. I'm Jill Hamilton, Senior Editor at Clearance Jobs. Thanks for joining us today as we chat with Tom Millar from Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency. So we're going to be talking with Tom about scary cyber stories and things we can be doing to stay safe. So thanks for joining us, Tom. Yeah, happy to be here. All right. So can you tell us a little bit about just how you wound up at CISA and what your role is? Sure. So I've been part of CISA since before it was called CISA. I started with a tiny, at the time, team called US CERT, if anybody remembers that. That was back in 2007. And since then, I've held a variety of positions throughout the agency, from network threat analyst in my earliest days to a senior watch officer to sort of a vulnerability responder, vulnerability disclosure coordinator. And also I ran the team that had the communications branch of US CERT, which had the team that ran the public website and all of our alerts and updates that went out to thousands of subscribers. We started social media at US CERT that they're still running today. We also had the entire vulnerability research and coordinated response team, as well as our international partnerships, our federal, state, local, and private sector partnerships. And all of our digital media, which has now turned into this whole operation where we have, you see video recordings coming out from CISA, you see all the incredible design that goes into the products that are issued by CISA. Those are all people that I'm proud to say that were part of my team at one point before we sort of had this diaspora. So I've been around and done a lot of things and seen a lot of stuff at CISA, and it's been an incredible ride. And now I'm a senior advisor in the vulnerability management subdivision of the agency. And senior advisor is just about the uh, the best job you can have in the federal government, I think, because you get some of the perks of being a, a senior as the name implies, but uh, you don't necessarily have to deal with quite as much of the bureaucracy and, and administrative work that everybody else does. So I'm enjoying it while it lasts. Given all the things that you've been around and seen and done, can you share with us maybe a scary cyber story that you've experienced? Ethics requires that I preface this cyber ghost story by saying it didn't actually happen to me, which I think is true of most scary stories. This is one that was recounted to me and really has stuck with me for several years. It's from the early days of ransomware, before ransomware became as endemic as it is today, affecting so many different networks and systems, unfortunately. A incident response team was called in to deal with a case of ransomware and help with the recovery effort and try to figure out, you know, what could be recovered, what could be salvaged from the ransomware incident. They weren't able to negotiate or they chose not to negotiate. In the end, they didn't pay a ransom. They didn't get a decryption key. They just had to recover whatever was left that hadn't been affected. They were able to, using network and memory forensics, they were able to determine the origin point for the ransomware. That is where in the network it came from. And they were thinking it would be an endpoint, like a a user's computer where they had actually clicked on a phishing link or something like that. But it actually came from one of their Active Directory servers, one of those things that is really core to your network. And they wondered, how did this happen? Ultimately, what they realized was the ransomware was deployed as a kind of controlled burn. A lot of different advanced persistent threats will always seek to cover their tracks one way or another. In this particular instance, the threat actor had used the ransomware in order to wipe out all evidence of what they had done. 
And the reason this is a scary story to me is because the very first time I heard about it, I was like, oh no, what if that becomes really prevalent that we keep running into these places where we think it's a rant, where we're going to say, oh, it's a ransomware incident. It turns out later that it's actually an advanced threat actor trying to do accomplish some other goal that we're not completely clear on. Because again, once they cover their tracks in such a fashion, it's not necessarily ever going to be the case that you can find out what they were after. What did they exfiltrate? What data were they looking for? What kind of persistence mechanisms did they try to use or successfully use? Because you can end up dismissing the entire thing as a ransomware incident, restore from backups, and you think you're on your way to a healthy network living again. Um, so that that is why it's so frightening to me. And it's stuck with me for years. So the spooky thing is kind of that you can think you're taking care of something and yet they're still in the system and you never actually got rid of them. Or is there, are there other elements where they cover their tracks and you just can't really get to where they're actually at? Two things. Persistence is always spooky. That's every incident responder has intrusive thoughts about persistence in a network after they think they've done eradication and cleanup. But the fact that we'll never know what they were actually trying to do before they deployed the ransomware, that's what bothers me the most, right? Usually we like to say once we have some attribution, we can see what the targets are. We can see what data was exfiltrated or what persistence we were able to identify and eradicate. We can say this is what they were aiming to ultimately achieve with this act. In this particular case, is like, all right, we have to rebuild and we'll have to just hope they don't come back again. Yeah, hope for the best there. So have you experienced other cyber attacks such as this one? Fortunately for me, I have not. I maybe sleep a little <laughs> bit better at night than uh, some of our more seasoned threat hunters that are out there. I will say for me, most of my career lately has been dealing with vulnerability response and vulnerability coordination. The spookier things for me are those what we call forever days, where there is a vulnerability that's just never going to get patched until the system they're part of is physically replaced. Yeah, no, that makes sense. So then what can we do to scare off bad actors from performing a cyber attack? I'm sure like we could all sit around for days and recount all the different scary things that keep us up at night in regards to cybersecurity. One of the helpful things about these conversations is also being proactive and like what we can do to just increase our defense against them. Well, I mean, scaring off bad actors is... While that sounds like a lot of fun, isn't really part of CISA's mission. That is something for our law enforcement colleagues mostly to help us take care of. And that's why they're such an important partner in this whole of government effort to deter cyber criminals and bad actors. What I've wanted to do for a long time, and the phrase I use is to say, I want to drive all of this threat actor activity back to the iron age of crime where you actually have to, you know, like embezzle funds the normal way. You have to have a corrupt individual on the inside. You can't just sort of fish an unwitting user and you can't just exploit vulnerabilities that are in the products we use every day, right? We've increased as our reliance on digital systems has increased. Our exposure to these types of threats has also increased. And what I look forward to in the future is encouraging the marketplace to produce more safety first types of products. Like I think people may have heard about the president's initiative to start an effort to create a sort of energy star label for Internet of Things devices so that they have sort of like meet a greater standard of cybersecurity first than others. I would love to see that for all sorts of things, all sorts of software and services that we rely upon where we can know when we're purchasing or acquiring something or signing up for a service that it's one that's already as secure as we can make it and that we would decrease our exposure that way. 
It's basically like, it's not in our scope or authorities to help scare criminals. I want it so expensive for criminals that it's not worth the effort and they want to go about their activities another way hopefully one that exposes them to more threat of law enforcement interdiction. I like the way you put it with the cyber criminals, because it is the people behind it. And basically our systems have made it so easy for them to gain access in ways that it should be harder. You know, I mean, if you look at like banks and people robbing banks back, you know, obviously it still happens, but it's much different now. But if you just put locks in place and, you know, different warnings that go off or the bulletproof glasses that can help protect people working there, like that same stuff when you put it in place in cybersecurity as well, it translates differently, obviously, but it makes it harder for them to just walk right in and do as they please, like you're saying. I think that's really helpful. And also encouraging people that your job is not to be the scare tactic that is federal law enforcement. <laughs> but there are things we can do to protect ourselves. So what are what would you say are some things that people can do to protect themselves, things that they should be looking for when they're operating online? The number one and two things are to always try to make sure that you're not reusing passwords between different sites. I personally don't actually use a password manager, although that is something that we do recommend for a lot of people. But I have so many different devices and so many different passwords across those devices that a password manager isn't as easy for me as it might be. So what I have is I have various mnemonic devices that I use to make long and strong passphrases that are associated with each site that I visit. And that way I do have sort of a way to memorize and recall the passwords I use for my different logins that are important to me. And while I'm keeping them long, strong, and unique to each site that I visit and use. So that's absolutely critical. If you reuse your passwords, bad guys love that. They love to use that to exploit various sites. They will get into your iCloud account, for example, or something like that. And then the rest of it is smooth sailing for the attacker. The other thing is wherever possible, if you have the option to enable two-factor authentication and use something like Google or Microsoft Authenticator on your phone, take advantage of those extra security layers to protect yourself and your accounts. The third thing I would say, make sure you have enabled automatic updates wherever possible. All of your most important systems, applications should have an automatic update feature since it is now 2022. We really strongly encourage everybody to enable that wherever possible. And if you can't, for whatever reason, use automatic updates, make sure you're updating on a regular basis. Like every time you use the application, check for an update first before you run it, or rather, Check for an update first, then use the application to do whatever you were trying to do. All of these can be found on our Shields Up campaign page. So you can go to the CISA.gov website, and I believe Shields Up is still right there front and center. Take a look at that resource, and uh, it has steps you can take to protect yourself and your family listed on there. The other resources I would say that people can take advantage of from CISA are our current activity updates and our alerts page. The current activity updates are for everybody. Anybody can take advantage of that information. It's a great way to know when to update. For example, your iPhone or your Android phone it always talks about what the updates are for commonly used devices and operating systems. And it also tells you when there's new vulnerabilities that are out there and that we want to make sure that everybody is aware of. I encourage everybody who wants to be cyber aware should take advantage of our current activity updates at a minimum. If you want to be uh, in on the scoop of new threat actor alerts, also sign up for our alert service. 
And we have vulnerability bulletins that come out weekly and also our analysis reports that uh, if you really want to geek out on some advanced malware analysis of new threat actor campaigns, that's where you can find those part of our national cyber awareness system. Yeah, I think it's just so helpful how break it down, just how basic it can be into staying safe in cyber with, you know, good passwords, multi-factor authentication, as well as just making those regular updates and just the role that SIS has played in providing that information so easily to the public, as well as to different companies, because it is about a partnership and everybody coming together to get our defenses up, you know, our shields up. If you haven't yet, check out SIS's website and take some time to see yourself in cyber, since we are all in this together and it does take everybody making those different choices to strengthen the U.S. and our response in that. I really appreciate you sharing with us today, Tom. Sure. Happy to. Really glad to be here. And thank you very much for having me. Thank you for joining us today at ClearedCast. For more security clearance news and defense information, please visit us at news.clearancejobs.com. This episode of ClearedCast is brought to you by the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. 